Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. This is The Roy Green Show podcast. Mr. Morneau has some problems. And they have to do with ethics. He'll tell you no, but come on, Bill. You know what the rules are. You know what the expectations are. You don't need to go to the ethics commissioner. Find out what you should do. Let me just read you a few words by David Aiken. Global News chief political correspondent. Uh, David wrote this uh, a couple of days ago. It's going to be a happy Halloween for Finance Minister Bill Morneau, Morneau Chappelle, Inc., the Toronto-based financial services and consulting firm founded by Morneau's family declared a dividend this morning of 6.5 cents per share, payable October 31. Morneau on Thursday said he holds about a million shares in Morneau Chappelle, MSI, which means his Halloween treat from the firm which bears his name will be worth $65,000. The Halloween dividend check will be the last, though, of 25 monthly dividend checks he's received since becoming an MP. Morneau on Thursday said he'll sell all his holdings in MSI and place the rest of his assets in a blind trust. Total the dividends paid to him by MSI while he was an MP was $1.625 million. MSI has been reliably churning out a dividend of 6.5 cents a share every single month that Morneau has been an MP and a shareholder, which means every single month he's been an MP and the finance minister uh, Morneau has been getting a check for nearly 65000 bucks. By contrast, his monthly paycheck from the government of Canada has been just under 22000 All of this has the opposition parties crying foul because all the while that Morneau has been receiving dividends from MSI, he's been pushing a bill through Parliament, Bill C-27, that would improve business opportunities for firms like Morneau Chappelle. Indeed, uh, indeed, MSI is believed to be one of just four firms in the country which will benefit from new pension administration rules if C-27 becomes law. Just reading what David Aiken has written. Morneau on Thursday said that he believed the discussion about his personal wealth has become a real distraction for his government. He said that even though no law requires him to do so, he was selling his shares and moving everything else to a blind trust in order to focus on what he believed was the important work of his government. I need to do more, Morneau said. And here's the final couple of sentences that I'm going to read from David Aiken's piece. Morneau holds his shares in MSI through an Alberta-numbered company. By placing his shares in a numbered company in Alberta, he exposes himself to less tax than if he'd put the Maasai inside a numbered company in Ontario. The three directors of that Alberta numbered company are Morneau himself, his wife, Nancy McCain, and an Ontario numbered company. The sole owner of that Ontario numbered company is, everybody, Bill Morneau. All right. Michelle Simpson is a former liberal member of parliament. She's a former seatmate to Justin Trudeau. She is uh, very conversant with the issue of ethics in government, having been stabbed in the back routinely and many times by her own party and by others for being an ethical member of parliament who wanted us all to know what she spent on her expenses 
and she posted all her expenses online. And for that, she was challenged by the then party leader, Michael Ignatieff, who offered Michelle a bribe, a big office with its own toilet. I can't get past that. <laughs> he offered Michelle a big office with its own toilet. And he also offered Michelle uh, some other attractive options. And Michelle said, no, I'm not going to do this. Why don't you do what I do? And that's inform Canadians. And so what they did for Michelle at that point was shut her down. She wasn't allowed to speak in Parliament anymore. So you're the ethical one. You you took it um, on the chin for refusing to compromise your ethics. I'm not suggesting Mr. Morneau is unethical, but at the very least, he's careless. Would you agree? Well, Roy, Roy, I really do think uh, there's some ethics issue with respect to Morneau. I, I don't know him personally. I've heard he's a decent guy, but they said the same about Nigel Wright. That's right. Really decent guy. So I have no illusion. And, but listening to him over the past few days and him saying, well, I was a little naive. Um, I, I'm sorry, I'm not buying that sale. And the other issue is, oh, I relied on the ethics commissioner. And I think to a certain degree, She's getting thrown under the bus by this government because her role isn't to advise, it's to help guide, and that's the reality. She would never, I can't believe that Mary Dawson would give advice. So what's the difference then between guide and advise? Um... In Morneau's case, what would have what would guidance I have been? I don't believe. I really don't believe that she gave him the advice that he could use this loophole. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think he found a loophole, and she had to say, um, "Well, you're quite correct. I think someone found the loophole for him." And I think, I believe that he twisted himself into a pretzel to avoid divesting himself, because he did talk about a blind trust early on, Mm -hmm. and then that was off the table. So, you know, I think... Are you disappointed in him? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Should Justin Trudeau be disappointed in him? Well, for the, I'm disappointed in the Prime Minister for the same reason. So, and, and yes, uh, the Prime Minister should be disappointed, but instead he's chosen to defend... 
Yes, what I to. believe is the indefensible. So, Michelle, you were a liberal MP. You were the seatmate to the prime minister. Yeah. Should Justin Trudeau be asking Bill Morneau for his resignation? In my view, yeah. yes. My that's, view, too. That's one person's view. Because he talked about a blind trust yep. two years ago. Yep. And then he says, well, I was a little naive. Well, do you think a guy that's built an empire is naive? Selectively. I don't think so. Selectively. Yeah. Here's an opportunity to be naive. Here it is. In the dividends paid to him by MSI while he was an MP, Mr. Morneau pocketed $1.625 million. $1.625 million. And so... He, and with Bill C-27, yeah. um, there was personal enrichment. Well, you know, as, 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 as Aiken writes, yeah. only about four Canadian companies will benefit from C-27. And, and his is one of them. His is one of them. And so, you know, to me, if he doesn't know what a conflict of interest is, personally, I believe he has no business being our finance minister. Absolutely. Can you hold on? Sure. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. And here is my friend, Michelle Simpson, former Liberal Member of Parliament. They told her initially, don't talk to him. The first time I called for an interview, because he's a rough interviewer. (laughs) <laughs> they lied. I'm a putty cat. So uh, I was afraid, Roy. What's that? I was a little bit afraid because <laughs> I was a rookie, and I thought, but you were one of you were one of the first that called me for yeah. an interview. Yeah, I'd like to get them when they're new. Oh yeah, and, and shaky. Well, that's what scared me. <laughs> Listen to Bill Morneau here, okay, Michelle. Then we'll take a couple of calls and, and hear some more thoughts from you. Remember, Michelle Simpson saying Justin Trudeau should call for the resignation of Bill Morneau. Here's here's Mr. Morneau. I expected that doing what finance ministers before me had done, doing what the other 337 members of Parliament have done, uh, is the right way to address that issue. And what I found is that there's, there's uh, some uh, noise around this. There's people like you asking about specific issues in my personal finances. The process we have in our country isn't that I report to journalists on my personal situation. It's that I report to the Ethics Commissioner, and I make sure that she fully understands my situation so we can get to the recommendations. So there, I don't report to journalists. Nor does he report... To the ethics commissioner, he reports to the people. The ethics commissioner, her role is to enforce, by the way, she has no teeth, but to enforce the rules that have been set. And if he needs his hand held through the, the ethics of his job, he has no business having that job. And didn't he say? And didn't he say he do, he's doing nothing? And I agree with you. He's doing nothing differently than any other finance minister or any of the other three hundred and thirty-seven MPs in the house. 
and I don't believe that for a second. Roy, I sent you documentation on various things. Yes, you do. And it's straightforward. The ethics, you go to the ethics commissioner if you have a technical issue. Yeah. You know, and I, I get that. But he said, I took her advice. Her role isn't to advise. Her role is to set out the options. And he took advantage, quite frankly, of a loophole. And to me, that indicates his ethical compass is different than mine. Okay. It's not pointing north. Uh, James in Burlington. James, should he, uh, should he walk? Should he resign? Should Trudeau ask for his resignation? I think so. And, and I, I believe firmly that uh, today's politicians, excluding our friend on the phone, I, I think we're, you. we're going... You're welcome. I, I think we're going down a road that is going to lead us into the same abyss that the Americans are falling into right now. Yep. And um, when it comes down to it, I'm 60 years old, and I've been listening. I've not been that interested in politics for most of my life, but lately I'm listening to this, and I'm thinking, you are a multimillionaire, and you're in a, you're in a position of power, and you don't know this? I, I really I have trouble believing that, right? I really do. Yeah, I so really do I. think that this... this we're just heading down the wrong path, and sometimes you have to cut it off at the head. You know what yeah, I'm saying? Yeah. Nobody in the entire Ministry of Finance he's close to would have had advice for him? Nobody? Well, this is my problem. Yeah. He's trying to pull 337 other people in with yeah, him, yeah, so that he yeah. kind of melts into the wall. Yeah, yeah, you got it. Then it becomes, yeah. a, then it becomes a lighter shade of gray. James, I appreciate your call, sir. Thank, thank you, you so much. Uh, Michelle, thank you, and we'll be talking again uh, in about an hour. About an hour, and I'm sure Mr. Morneau will come up again with the beauties. Okay. Michelle Simpson, former Liberal Member of Parliament and former seatmate to Justin Trudeau, saying again very clearly that Mr. Trudeau should be calling for the resignation of Mr. Morneau. And Mr. Morneau, you need to resign because you have lost the confidence of the people of Canada. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Dan Kelly is the CEO and the president of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. It's small business. Is it small business day today, Dan? Small business Saturday, yeah. It's small the business day Saturday. that we're out there trying to support the local independents that right. uh, do so much for our neighborhoods. Yeah, well, and uh, it's small business week, correct? It's the end of small business week, and what a week it's been. What a week it's been, and with me as well, and she operates with her husband, a small business. Uh, they are farmers in Saskatchewan. She's caught the attention of people across this country and beyond. On social media is Megs Reynolds. Um, what's, your, what's, your, uh, what's your Facebook handle again, Megs? Uh, my Facebook handle or my Twitter? Twitter. I'm sorry, Twitter. It's Farmer Megs with two Zs on Megs. Okay. So uh, let me ask you first, Megs, when you hear what you've heard about Mr. Morneau, about his money, about what he's done with his money and hasn't done with his money, how do you react uh, knowing that he was going to come after you and everyone else who operated a farm for more cash in the interest of tax fairness? Well, he could have, you know, I don't personally have a problem with um, the wealth his family has built up. I do have a problem with the fact that it wasn't put into a blind trust off the bat, and there's huge ethical problems with that. Um, 
But my problem stems from the fact that the changes that they uh, first uh, put forward and then have kind of amended a bit now weren't actually going to affect him or someone like Trudeau. They were going to more affect the middle class and small business. The very people they say they want to help. Exactly. And and how much of a difference is what Mr. Morneau and Mr. Trudeau plan now? How much of a difference will that mean to you if if what they had planned originally was absolutely the worst possible compass point to be to be aiming for? How much better is it do what they've got planned now? Well, the fact that uh, they're, they've made changes and they've scrapped um, the fact that it will no longer be uh, made more expensive to sell a business within the arm's reach to family members that. Uh, for the agriculture community is huge, but pretty much the rest of it uh, doesn't doesn't really feel like they've done much. They've, they've they're trying to make it seem like they've done stuff by saying that they've changed, um, allowing that you can have up to fifty thousand uh, of passive aggress- uh, investment in a company. Which, when a company is holding passive investment, uh, that the reason for that is to save for expansion. It's to save for a rainy day fund. And at the end of the day, 50000 really is not that much. Dan Kelly is CEO and President of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. When you take what, uh, what was first going to be the construct for Mr. Morneau and Mr. Trudeau for small business in the interest of fair taxation, and then you compare it with what's there now, how much better is it? And is this one really going to make a significantly better reality for small businesses in this country? I'd say roughly about half. I think they've met small business small business owners about halfway. Uh, I think Megs is right, quite right. A lot of the changes are going ahead, largely unchanged, uh, and that is a worry for us. Particularly the idea of sharing income among family members in the business, which certainly would apply to agriculture and a whole bunch of other small business owners that may have one spouse taking the lead and and the other spouse playing perhaps a more supportive role in the life of the family business. So, uh, you know, the the big changes, and, and Meg's got it right, the capital gains changes, those were good. They've dropped largely those provisions. They've added a big sweetener to the whole pot, and that will be a reduction in the small business corporate tax rates down to 9%. That's going to save, on the surface, uh, hundreds of millions of dollars for small and medium-sized firms. So, you know, we give them credit for getting back to that. But we have to remember that that was an original election promise of the federal government, so and it had been legislated before that by the conservatives. So this isn't a, a, a brand new gift. Well, it's kind of like saying, "I promise you, from tomorrow on, the sun will rise in the east." <laughs> Same well, sort of you know, sa- the, the analogy, Roy, that I used is: uh, I've got a nine-year-old son at home, and if I had given him a Christmas a birthday present, took it away for two years, and then gave it back to him. Uh, yeah, he'd probably be happy that he got his gift back, but I think he'd have some questions about me. And that's a little bit how we're feeling about the government right now. All right, so what are the questions? Megs, what are the questions that you have for the government? What are the questions you have about uh, about Mr. Morneau? And I'll, I'll lead it off by saying that we asked former member of parliament, former seatmate to Justin Trudeau, who herself was challenged on ethics issues in parliament, challenged because she made everyone aware of what her expenses were, uh, online, and she was ordered by her party, the Liberal Party, to not do so. And she said, I will not succumb to what you're telling me to do because Canadians deserve to know what I'm spending on expenses. Why don't you all follow me? So they shut her down. So understanding that, um, what, do you, what, do you, what do you think would be appropriate for Mr. Morneau to do now? 
That's actually a perfect lead-in to one of my questions is, if this was any other minister, uh, would Trudeau be putting up with these actions? Uh, I think that if he was, I mean, there's, look at the minister that was kind of shuffled back because he stood against the Liberals' uh, proposal on this front when the Conservatives voted for a longer consultation period. He was the only Liberal to stand against it. And they kind of shuffled him away. And I think that if uh, it was not the finance minister who kind of was at the heart of this controversy, I think that you would see different action in regards to uh, his political outcome with the party. But I think Trudeau is scared to um, pass out any punishment uh, for his actions because he's his right-hand man. And that is basically him admitting, admitting that he made a massive screw-up. Yeah, plus there's a question or two about Mr. Trudeau's ethical engagements uh, that will see him uh, in front of the ethics commissioner. Um, Dan, what about what about you? What what advice would you give Mr. Morneau? Has he has he gotten himself into a into a mess now that will forever, or at least as long as he's finance minister, make his credibility questionable in that role? It is tough to say. I, and look, this has certainly taken a big knock to his credibility. I think. I mean, the the reason I think business owners are so angry is because not just a, not just because of the changes, but the tone that the government took, and then of course with the uh, with the, uh, the the problems that they've had on the on their personal front, it just makes this a lot more a lot messier. Uh, I think though that business look business people are very busy. Uh, they don't have time. It's it's unusual for business people to be as worked up as they are to have had as many protests and rallies and online petitions as as have happened in recent days. And I think if they keep their noses clean, if they abide by these promises, if they're sincere about additional consultation, and they look at making further tweaks and changes to the package that they've already put out, I think the business community will continue to deal with them uh, respectfully. But gosh, if this is a trend line, uh, it's anyone's guess. And I, you know, one of the, one of the things that I guess I've been pleased about is that 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 business people have made their voices heard, and that that has made a difference. And it certainly took to, taken, I think, the bloom off the rose of government over the last little while. That's that's a that's a positive thing. I think now we uh, we can certainly do a reset if they're sincere about the uh, what they've said they're going to do, and that is to even consider further changes. To the package they put in front of us now. Well, Dan, as far as the credibility of Mr. Morneau is concerned with the business community, you used "if" so many times. <laughs> you're, you're absolutely right. Look, I mean, we've just come through a four-month war—a war with government over not just some substantive policy changes, but basically the whole way that they spoke about small and medium-sized firms. Look, I want to celebrate uh, the Morneau family's success. I think that's terrific. I just wish for, from time to time they might celebrate the success of other small business owners and not look at them and not make them out to be some form of tax cheat. Uh, the mm-hmm. tone that they took this week has, was an awful lot better. Had they started with that, this could have been an awful lot different. But that's not what happened. And, Megs, what, um, what do you want to add to that? I agree. Um, you know, I put out on Twitter that we need to take the changes that did happen as a win. Everyone that wrote letters um, made their, you know, raised their voices, um, got out there on social media, made phone calls. Um, they influenced the majority government, and that's huge. And I think we need to take a moment to celebrate that. Um, it, it, I feel also it was a fight that I don't think we should have had to make with our government, but I'm glad that we were able to influence the process. 
And I hope that, you know, we will see changes. I'd still like to see um, them change a bit on the uh, income sharing. And I'm interested to see if they actually stick to uh, the announcement that they will be following what the Conservatives started with, lowering business tax rates. You know, we could hit the next budget and they freeze it again. So I'm curious to see how we move forward. I have, a, I have this funny feeling that they're going to come to you with an offer of some kind. <laughs> Just a feeling. Just a feeling. But you've had a lot to do with helping Canadians focus on the specifics that were necessary. And, and for us to, uh, we actually saw the farm family through your portrayals and your, 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 ex, you know, your, your portrayal of your family and what it was going to mean to you. We understood the farm family a lot better. People in the urban community had a better idea because of you of what it's like in, in rural Canada. And I think that had a lot to do with driving this whole issue forward. So congratulations to you. Thank you. I think it's important for people to see the families and the stories behind so that they, you know, it's a lot easier to have compassion or to have understanding when you have um, a true life story to connect it to. And I was I was impressed by being able to um, just draw people to it and to uh, influence others to get out there and to speak up and to make their own videos. So I was happy that I was able to help others be brave enough to speak up. And Dan, thank you for uh, marshalling the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. And your members really rung the bell in Ottawa. They really rung the bell. And somebody said, will you get up and see who's there? Oh, my God. Well, we've been doing this for 46 years. When John Bullock set up this place uh, back in 1971, Catherine Swift running it for 20-plus for years, uh, a lot of hard work went into building this organization, but I'm incredibly proud of the 109,000 members. And I just want to echo what you said. Megs, you are a real Canadian hero for uh, helping to represent small and medium-sized firms, particularly agribusiness across Canada, in, in the face of what is a, uh, a pretty big set of challenges that the federal government chose to throw at us. Okay, guys. Thank you. Thanks so much. <laughs> Megs Reynolds, Dan Kelly, thank you. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Reading from uh, The Atlantic magazine, uh, under instructions from UK Prime Minister David Cameron, economist Jim O'Neill has spent the last two years looking into the problem of drug-resistant infections, bacteria and other microbes that have become impervious to antibiotics. In that time, he estimates that a million people have died from such infections. By 2050, he thinks that 10 million will die every year. There's another paragraph, a few lines, then we'll talk to our guest. The report's language is sober, but its numbers are apocalyptic. If antibiotics continue to lose their sting, resistant infections will sap $100 trillion from the world economy between now and 2050, the equivalent to $10,000 for every person alive today. 10 million people will die every year, roughly one every three seconds, and more than currently die from cancer. These are conservative estimates. They don't account for procedures that are only safe or possible because of antibiotics like hip and joint replacements, gut surgeries, C-sections, cancer chemotherapy, and organ transplants. This is really, really serious business. And according to the uh, English Medical Officer of Health, it could be the end of modern medicine as we know it. Now, we've been talking to Jason Tetro, the germ guy, about this particular development. And Jason is back with us on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network to uh, get into this some more. And uh, this, is a, this is a developing 
hugely concerning issue. You've known about it for a long time, Jason, but for yeah. the general public, this is a serious, serious wake-up call. Yeah, that, that's, I think that's the big issue right now is um, things that people like myself in the microbiology and infection control world have known about for you know, over two decades. It, it's finally becoming real out in the public, and as a result of that, um, the numbers may seem incredibly apocalyptic, uh, but what's interesting is that over the last 20 years, those numbers have actually grown to this level. So back in the 1990s, we were only looking at maybe um, 1 million people dying uh, by 2030 uh, every year and only approximately you know, um, 100 billion uh, in, in terms of cost. And so that's been growing and growing simply because very little has been done to stop uh, this progression of antimicrobial resistance. Why? Why has so little been done? Well, it really comes down to one problem, and that is you cannot regulate how a doctor treats a patient, and as a result of that, we continually see how antibiotics get used or misused um, in, in common practice, and that's really the problem that we've been seeing. You can't regulate how uh, pharmaceutical companies manufacture antibiotics, um, and, and, you know, a, a perfect point is in India, we have literally antibiotic-resistant lakes because of the runoff from the pharmaceutical developments. So the problem really comes down to the fact that no matter what institution you're looking at, whether it be the World Health Organization, the Government of Canada, or, um, you know, I'm in Toronto, so the province of Ontario and the city of Toronto, they can only offer guidelines. They can't create laws in order for treatment to happen. Is it too late? Well, in terms of antibiotics themselves, um, what we've been seeing since the 1940s, yeah. Um, it, it, it's eventually going to run out, and we need to start exploring new avenues. And, you know, there are these global action plans that come from the World Health Organization or, or pan-national plans from Canada. And what these are doing is trying to find out ways that we can use alternatives to antibiotics so that we don't have to rely on them uh, in, in the near future. But if we look at uh, the next 13 years, would you say the report that was commissioned for David Cameron when he was Prime Minister of the UK last year, it's hard to believe that it was still last year, but, mm -hmm. it, but it was commissioned last year. Do you believe those numbers uh, are, are, are reasonable and could even get worse? Well, there is one contingency that uh, Lord Jim O'Neill did put into the document, and that is that the rate of antibiotic-resistant infections in the public has to mirror what is going on in hospitals and healthcare facilities. We're not at that point yet, but I can tell you one thing. In one case, uh, a bug that you've probably heard of, Clostridium difficile, um, yes. the one that's in the gut and, yes. and affects many people, yeah. They looked at that back in 1980, and they were seeing that the potential for community levels of infection could match hospitals very quickly, um, simply because people just were not aware, and they were also being sent home with these microbes that could resist, and they were spreading them to others. Mm. And that was in 1980. So what Lord O'Neill was essentially saying is, we haven't gotten there yet, but we already know that it could happen, and that's why his numbers are valid. We just have to be sure that we can, you know, prove him wrong, if you will. 
I want to ask you as well, in the two and a half minutes we have left, about a nasty little bugger known as a, a, a the bed bug. <laughs> yes. There was a story about a family flying on a commercial airliner. They noticed something's crawling around in the creases of the seat in front of them. Mm-hmm. And by the time they got off the plane, they had lots of bites, and there were the bed bugs. Yeah. Bed bugs, um, that's another possible pandemic uh, because they, they have been sort of increasing in their prevalence all over. Seeing them on an airplane, very rare. And there's something that's called uh, disinfection, which means getting rid of insects. Uh, many of the airlines will do that, but sometimes an airline will miss out on the 24-hour process, and so this could potentially happen. And as we know, bed bugs are in hotels. They'll, they'll get into your carry-on luggage. They'll then get into the um, seat pockets. If it's dark and it's dry, they're going to grow and live and have a great time. You know what I do with my luggage when I'm in a hotel? I put, it, I put it in the shower and close the glass door. That's a really great idea. I've never actually done that. <laughs> I, I can't claim that it was mine originally. I read that somewhere as a, as a, uh, a response to the bed, bed bug threat. Yeah. So I thought, that makes sense. So yeah. I just took my bags and I put them in the shower and closed the door. And That's a fantastic idea. Yeah. Yeah. For me, what I do is I usually find the, the most openly visible area where I can actually see everything, and that's usually where I'm putting it, and you, it's above ground. Uh, but I, I do my best never to put my uh, my bags on the bed itself because, of course, they're called bed bugs, right? That's right. That's what they are. I know. And, and they're serious. It's not, not something, anything to laugh at. It's a serious issue. Well, it is a serious issue. And we have seen, especially in places like Vancouver, where bed bugs could potentially be carrying antimicrobial-resistant bacteria, to go back to the original story. Mm-hmm. So the idea is um, if you see them notify people so that they the distance uh, they can be removed uh properly and then we don't have to worry about it all right the books are germ code and germ files and they're by jason tetro the the germ guy <laughs> and um yeah he's online as well always always a pleasure to talk to you jason oh it's such a pleasure we'll be talking again soon i'm sure uh, i'm sure take care bye jason tetro be aware antibiotics not as effective as they were, and it's going to get worse. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. It's reading a story on globalnews.ca by uh, Amy Judd. Raymond Casey sentenced to life in prison for killing Surrey teen Serena Vermeersh. And here's the story about Casey. He does 22 years in prison. 22 years. Served an entire sentence for a violent sexual assault and kidnapping in 1991. Then they were going to release him, but he tells the parole board, I think maybe you'd better not, better keep me in for a few more years. But the parole board or the system cuts him loose, and now there's a 14-year-old who's dead, and Casey's going back to prison. Well, he's back in prison. And it's a life sentence with a minimum of 17 years. My good friend Scott Newark and I have been talking about justice issues for the last 25 years anyway, and Scott's responsible for everything that I've learned about the justice system. Former Alberta prosecutor, executive officer for the Canadian Police Association, president of the Office for Victims of Crime in Ontario, and now adjunct professor at Simon Fraser University. We've talked about people, Scott, who've had 70 criminal convictions or still let out more than 70 criminal convictions. And I wish that I could say this Casey story is one of a kind. I've seen it before, but I'm really, really sad 
for the loss of the 14-year-old, but really sad as well that these things continue. Yeah, this, uh, she's actually, she was actually uh, 17, but um, this guy is, uh, is unique in one sense because he was actually kept for his full sentence. He was deemed to be so dangerous and so likely to reoffend that he was never released. That's very, very rare. And what is, I think, a particular note in this case uh, is that in the old days, when you and I first started talking about this, um, literally there was nothing the system could do. Once somebody had reached the end of their sentence, the warrant expiry date, we literally had to wait for another victim before the state could intervene. And as you, I'm sure, remember, in the uh, Joe Frederick's case of the uh, guy who was a repeat criminal who uh, ended up uh, abducting and raping and murdering a 12-year-old boy, Christopher Stevenson, that focused attention on this, that that just simply wasn't good enough. And we actually changed the laws back in the 90s. We created specialized orders. I was very much involved in it because I'd had some experience with, with some of this stuff as a prosecutor. And we literally changed the laws to create these specialized orders called peace bonds or preventive reconnaissances so that if somebody was still deemed to be dangerous at the end of their sentence, you could go to court, you could put this order on the guy, and it was just like a parole order or a probation order with one major difference, a distinction from a parole order. If you breached the conditions of your release, that was a crime, and we could send you back to jail. When I testified on the bill, I actually referred to it as life on the installment plan. And this guy, I did some digging around, this guy was kept for his full sentence. The uh, police issued a high-risk offender notice, which is a flag that they have likely got one of these orders, and in fact they must have, because he's released in March 2013. In June, they uh, correct PC Corrections issues that public release. Uh, in January of 2014, he's found guilty of breach of reconnaissance. Okay, that means one of those orders was put on him. But you know what, Roy? You know what sentence he got? Three months. He could have got, under the current legislation, he could have got four years. And by not using those tools that we actually worked hard to put in place, mm -hmm. whether it was the Crown or the court, this guy was on the streets when he never should have been. Yeah. And in the Fredericks case, I will never forget this, the uh, Justice Minister, and he was Justice Minister and Solicitor General combined. I can't remember his name. Isn't that terrible? Um, anyway, it doesn't matter. He, I'd been speaking with Christopher's dad and, and lawyer, and uh, the Justice Minister, we, we give him a hard time on the air, so the Justice Minister's press secretary called and said, Minister wants to come in and straighten you out. So the minister came into the studio, and we had been talking about Christopher's fate at the hands of Joseph Fredericks for about a week. And people were really, really energized. And so the justice minister slash solicitor general really took it from, from my callers, really, really took it. And I wasn't too gently on him either. And as he was leaving, according to his press secretary, who called me that night, and one of the things that they were upset about, people were upset about, was the federal government wasn't going to be paying for the family's legal representation of the inquiry. They said, no, the federal government's uh, lawyers can handle the family's uh, yeah. concerns as well as ours. Well, the minister said to his press secretary, I really took it in there, didn't I? And the press secretary said, yes, minister, you did. And the minister said, I deserved it. Get me on the air with, uh, with Roy Green again tomorrow, 
He came on the show, and I, I have to I have to say this because it's a politician who lived up to what he said he would do. Alan Rock. Alan? No, no, it wasn't Alan Rock. Well, then it would have been Herb Gray. No, no, no. But we're getting there. Uh, he the two he, federal ministers. Yeah, I know they were, but not the ones I'm not the one I'm thinking of. Anyway, he called and he said, "We are going to be uh, paying the legal expenses for the family, Stevenson's family, for the inquest or the inquiry." And I can assure you and your listeners, the law is going to change. The law is going to change. And he worked hard. Now, this is awful. I can't remember his name. Um, well, if the I think he's in the wine business in California that. now. Pardon me? I think he's in the wine business in California now. I, I don't know who you mean, because the inquest was a provincial inquest. Yeah, well, I'll, I'll, I'll find his name, Scotty. Yeah. And that, that, however, is relevant because, for example... This guy should not have been released. On the reconnaissance, you can put conditions on it so yeah. he couldn't just live in downtown Surrey. Yeah. Okay? Uh, they should have had electronic monitoring on this yeah. guy. What I think is necessary here is for the province of British Columbia to repeat what the province of Ontario did in that inquest, whether they do it as an inquest or whether they do it as a, a, a judicial inquiry or a special inquiry, to look at the circumstances of how this guy was in the position to commit the crime that he did. Because we can create the legislative tools, but if the entities within the system, the Crown, the courts, don't use the tools, then the public doesn't get the protection. Well, it's the, it's the, uh, it's the, it's the weakest link uh, analogy. Well, it's very frustrating because if you if you look at it, I mean, we actually changed the law to create tools to deal with a guy like this, and for whatever reason, the justice system didn't use them, and now there's a young girl that's dead as a result. And it won't be the last time, unless things well, change. And this is what I, why I mentioned the story about the minister whose name still escapes me, but it's going to take somebody or more than one person in uh, power, in a position of real power, in the justice system, who says, enough. Well, personally, I enough. think uh, shining a light on things is a good way to get stuff done. Yeah. And that's why there should be these kinds of questions asked and answered. Why were the available tools not used? Okay, it's not just about changing laws. The people who are within the justice system, the officials, have to use the tools that we have crafted to be able take advantage of them for public safety, mm-hmm. and they need to answer when they don't. Yes, they do. Scott, thank you very much. Appreciate it always. All right, Roy. Scott Newark, who has worked so hard for, for crime victims in this country for so long, and has gone a long way to educating people uh, in, in, in my business, in the media in Canada, about the justice system. Been an invaluable resource. Former Crown Attorney who felt confined by that role and wanted to get out and make a a bigger imprint, and he's certainly done that. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. So earlier today, my guest was one Michelle Simpson, former Liberal Member of Parliament, former seatmate to the current Prime Minister of Canada, Justin Trudeau, and we were speaking about Bill Morneau, the federal minister of finance, who has uh, said some very interesting things and whose story is fascinating. And if you read David Aiken's account of Mr. Morneau's money's travels, it's, it's a really, really excellent read. But I asked Michelle Simpson this question as a former liberal member of parliament, 
as somebody who was really ground through the mill because she was ethical and because those around her wanted to persuade her not to be ethical in Parliament, I asked her, again, former Liberal Member of Parliament, whether the current Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau, should be asking for the resignation of his Finance Minister, Bill Morneau. Michelle, what did you... Remind us, please, what you said. I said yes. He should be asked for his resignation. And for a number of reasons, Roy, but not the least of which is, you know, he tries to play that he's naive. If you're naive, that shows lack of wisdom and judgment. And if not, it's premeditated. And when he said to a reporter, I'm not responsible to you, words to this effect, I'm not responsible to you to give you answers, I'm only responsible to give the ethics commissioner answers or, or, or satisfy her, your response to that was what? You know, that is not true, in my view. He's responsible to the taxpayers. Mary Dawson's role, she's not an advisor, is to help guide if you need guidance. But if you need that kind of guidance as the finance minister, uh, I'm sorry, you have really no business being our finance minister. I think he needs a financial or finance version of a seeing eye dog. Exactly. It is time for Beauties and the Beast with Michelle Simpson, at Michelle Simpson on Twitter, Linda Leatherdale, at Linda Leatherdale on Twitter, and Catherine Swift, workingcanadians.ca. <laughs> so, Catherine, I was all Hi, Linda. Hi, Catherine. Hello. Hi, guys. Hello, guys. Stop right. it. Stop it. Um, I was speaking with uh, the gentleman who followed you as president and CEO of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business, Dan Kelly, yeah. about an hour ago, about the week since we last spoke with Mr. Kelly and with you about the uh, the realities of the fairness in taxation that Mr. Morneau was apparently after. What do you uh, say about his performance in the last week, Catherine? Oh, boy. Well... First of all, I, I sat on a board with Bill Morneau for a few years. So I, 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 I know Bill Morneau. I don't say I know him well, but I know him somewhat anyway. And, and to, be, to be fair, um, I, I really don't believe that he was trying to personally, financially gain from this. But that being said, he, you know, he's, he's another one of these guys, and Trudeau's another one that grew up very privileged, right from the get-go, like they didn't earn it. I mean, they may have earned stuff later, but you know what I'm saying. They, they, they were born with the silver spoon. And, and for them to, like Michelle said, naive, and, and I'm not sure if I'd say naive as much as I think there's a, there's a real environment of arrogance, entitlement, and we're, you know, we're morally better than you guys, the rest of you guys, uh, in Ottawa right now with this crowd. I think it permeates, and there's always a little bit of that in government, no question, but I think it permeates this particular crowd. And I tend to think Morneau got trapped into that bubble, thought that he really wasn't subject to the rules that other people were subject to. And, you know, liberal arrogance is a contagious disease, a very contagious disease. And, Michelle, you were one of the ones that had immunity to it. So you're, you're a rarity. 
And anyway, that's that's my take on it for what it's worth. But he didn't cover himself with glory. And, and I must say, when he t- when he tried to dress down the media, I don't answer to you. Mm. The media has been so overly sympathetic. Not all of them. Roy, you're an exception, for example. But you know, so much of the media has been forgiven this government so many faux pas and so many clear, you know, mistakes and broken promises and on and on and on. For anyone in that liberal government to criticize the media, to me, is the height of hypocrisy. Okay, so but Linda, Catherine, oh, go he ahead. described himself as I naively believed. Wow. Yeah, and well. he used the words himself. Yeah. And I thought, you don't make a gazillion dollars no. a year by being naive. Yeah, and yet, but Michelle, again, and I'm not, you know, I'm not saying you're wrong at all, but no. But it, also, he did inherit it. You know what I mean? He, he did inherit it, and and yes, fine. It's but if you look at the businesses that Morneau Chappelle is in, they're in the businesses of things like defined benefit public sector pensions. And frankly, you'd have to be a real bozo to screw that one up because and he sponsored backstop Bill C twenty seven. Yes, well that that is that is a huge problem. That is. So let me problem. read a let me I read a, let me just read. ladies let me just read a, a couple of lines here because people join us all the time. And uh, Linda, I'm going to get your thoughts in a second. Uh, here's some of what David Aiken wrote. Morneau Chappelle, Inc., the Toronto-based financial services and consulting firm founded by Morneau's family, declared a dividend this morning of 6.5 cents per share, payable October 31st. He wrote this on October 19. Um, Morneau on Thursday said he holds about a million shares in Morneau Chappelle, Inc., MSI, which means his Halloween treat from the firm, which bears his name, will be worth $65,000. The Halloween dividend check will be the last, though, of 25 monthly dividend checks he's received since becoming MP. Morneau on Thursday said he'll sell all his holdings in MSI and place the rest of his assets in a blind trust. In total, the dividends paid to him by MSI while he was an an MP totaled $1.625 million. MSI has been reliably churning out a dividend of 6.5 cents a share, Every single month that Morneau has been an MP and a shareholder, which means every single month he's been an MP and the finance minister, Morneau has been getting a check for nearly $65,000. By contrast, his monthly paycheck from the government of Canada has been just under $22,000. All of this has the opposition parties crying foul, all the while that Morneau uh, has been receiving dividend checks from MSI. He's been pushing through a bill in Parliament, Bill C-27, that would improve business opportunities for firms like Morneau Chappelle. Indeed, MSI is believed to be one of just four firms in the country which will benefit from new pension administration rules if C-27 becomes law. And then there's just two more the brief statements here from, uh, yeah, by David Aiken. Morneau on Thursday said that he believed the discussion about his personal wealth had become a real distraction for his government. He said that even though no law requires him to do so, he was selling his shares and moving everything else to a blind trust in order to focus on uh, what he believed was the important work of his government. Morneau holds, I love this one, Morneau holds his shares in MSI through an Alberta-numbered company. By placing the shares in a numbered company in Alberta, he exposes himself to less tax than if he'd put them inside a numbered company in Ontario. The three directors of the Alberta-numbered company are Morneau himself, his wife Nancy McCain, and another Ontario-numbered company. The sole owner of that other Ontario-numbered company is, wait for it, Bill Morneau. (laughs) 
Yeah, well, that's the thing that's that's the thing that's really biting them here, and deservedly so, which is hypocrisy. Yeah. You know, here, here we have ultra-rich people, like ultra-rich people, uh, trying to pretend they're boosting the middle class by taxing people that worked hard in small business and actually maybe earn above the average income as a result, even yeah, though they earn a lot he said and, he, uh, and so on. He that said he's been working 25 years. He said he was working 25 years to build his business. I don't for a moment think that Bill Morneau did not know what was going on, what the ins were, and what the outs were. Now, I'm going to have to take an out of here in a second, but we have to hear from Linda Leatherdale. Yes. Oh, my all I'm going to say is absolutely disgusting, and I don't believe it. Naive, my butt. Uh, you know, Michelle, you hit the nail on the head. The taxpayers are his boss. We deserve a proper explanation, and we don't need that kind of arrogance that we just heard saying that the media, he doesn't have to answer. Excuse me. And this just smacks of, and you said, like, entitlement, arrogance. Etc. And I believe what Michelle says. You know, let's go back to the Senate scandal. We saw them play loose and fire furious. I didn't understand the rules. We didn't know the rules. We didn't know the ethics. And on and on it goes. We've been down this road before, and we certainly don't need it with the finance minister of Canada. So you know what? Do the good thing and resign. Because yeah. I think this yeah. Don't give up your don't give up your money. Take your money and go money go and back run. go back to business. You know, yeah. because I th- I really think that he's his credibility as finance minister of Canada is done. Yeah. Done. Well, it's totally done. And I believe the credibility of the entire government done. to claim it works for middle-class Canadians. Oh. And, and in, my, in my personal view, and I'm biased, so I totally admit that, I thought it was done a long time ago, but this puts the, you know, this just puts the death knell to it, yeah. in my view. And, and I just want to add, tax fairness, my butt again. He's coming after the little guys, the guys who create jobs, and then that hoofah about, well, we're going to employee benefits. Where's all this coming from? Smoke, smoke, and more smoke. And meanwhile, he's playing a game where he's paying less tax. Come on, guys. Come on. And Mr. Morneau, just so you've got it, 1-800-263-2428. That's where we are. 1-800, right at the other end of 1-800-263-2428. So Michelle Simpson, Linda Leatherdale, Catherine Swift... And me, we're more than happy to have you say your piece uh, right here, right now. 800-263-2428. If Mr. Morneau is listening, sometimes they do. <laughs> Just give us a call. And, right? Sure. Well, no, don't say that. Don't help me. <laughs> we know we really uh, this has happened in the past where somebody has listened and they said oh, i want to get on the air and i want to straighten this out or i want to say what's on my mind i don't think that's gonna happen. oh don't right. say that cut her off <laughs> how, how did you like through the press conference though, hold on we have we have to take a break you're listening to the roy green show weekends from two to five on am 900 chml michelle simpson linda leatherdale Catherine swift they're the beauties i'm the beast and tomorrow, one of the other issues we're going to be talking about, Margaret Wente will be joining us from the Globe and Mail, is the issue of white privilege. And I've, uh, I'm, I'm, I really, frankly, I'm tired of hearing about white privilege and being told that because I happen to be Caucasian that I'm somehow generationally privileged. And uh, I don't know how you all three feel about it, but that's going to be an issue of discussion in detail tomorrow. Uh, Catherine, let me start with you. What about the white privilege issue? Oh boy, I, I, I must say I think the world's gone mad in so many ways these days, and this is one of them. I mean, people are. When I look at the the 
the whole racist sort of discussion, which I'm sympathetic to by and large, you know, the, the whole premise of it is that you have no control over how you're born, and therefore you should not be discriminated against, treated worse or, or better or whatever because of it. And the whole, the whole white privilege thing, to my way of thinking, I mean, yeah, I'm white. Okay, I'm white. Uh, I, didn't, I didn't have any choice to be white, and that's how I was born, just as people who aren't white were, you know, were born in their respective, you know, areas, et cetera, et cetera. So I, I just, it, it just confounds me that, you know, racism is basically discriminating against somebody because of how they were born. So, again, and they have no control over it. So how is this not racist? Anyway, and, I, well, it is. It connection. is. It Maybe is. You guys can help me. It's counter-racism. It's racist <laughs> toward the Caucasians. Michelle, what's your thinking? I still recall when I was an MP, I did a, a ride with the police. And at that point, my son wanted to be in law enforcement. And I was told he's white, uh, he's male, no chance. And I never forgot that. And I'm really sick and tired of being told that if I have an opinion that is not racist, that they're taking it as racist. And uh, I'm kind of tired of the whole argument. And Linda? Well, I sent you a note earlier this week, Roy, saying my blood is boiling over this. This That's right, you did, you did. This is racism at its height. Mm-hmm. Uh, and reverse racism, that's not acceptable. Creating hatred. And yes, you know, we look at Morneau. Is the old boys white network alive and well? Oh, maybe. But I want to say to these advocates who say we all must crow down and say, I'm sorry, I'm white. Go over to some other countries. China. We have a dictator. Yeah. What about all of these sheiks that will control all the money, and then they kill their people if you don't agree with their politics or what they're saying? At least we live in a country. And I'm standing here in Vancouver, Roy. I'm a little bit cold. I'm out in Granville Island. But we have rights and freedom. Wine, wine, wine. White privilege. Oh, yeah, that's right. Hold on. Is that wine with an H or without an H? Oh, I'm going for wine right after this, Roy. (laughs) You're going to wine through a lot, or you're going through a lot of wine? Well, a little bit. I'm at the okay. David Foster. You know, I just want to. You mentioned Margaret Wente, Roy. Yes. And and she wrote a column a while ago, and it was right after Trump got elected. And I thought it made a heck of a lot of sense. And I want to listen to her. Tomorrow. Well, she I wrote a column about this sense. this white uh, privilege issue. Uh, not long ago, so exactly. Margaret's going to be coming on and speaking about it. And we're going to be speaking as well about a young woman at uh, University of Dalhousie uh, University who is going to be disciplined for something that she wrote online that she is not. Uh, at all uh, taking back. And uh, I don't want to take anything out of context, and we'll talk about that a bit tomorrow. So, Good on her. Huh? Good on her. Yeah, but you know what? Mm-hmm. Most average people that are not racist, not sexist, not homophobic, whatever, are getting very sick and tired of being called that. Well, yes. Yeah, and this exactly. is what is fueling. Yeah. And that's what our first hour was about today. Populist uh, revolution, if you want to call it that, today. Because average folks know that they're not in any of those categories, and they're fed up with being labeled that uh, by the left wing. You know what you notice, or at least what I notice, 
is whenever we talk about this issue, people's energy levels climb tremendously. Oh, and that yeah. tells you how important that issue is viscerally yeah. to everyone. Yeah. The issue of race is so significantly important to everyone. And I think it is partly because we're constantly being told how to think by the people we hire to manage our commercial affairs. Yeah, well, and I got to go. Teachers in the school go. teaching this now. Hey, our kids. Vancouver <laughs> chick, I got to go. Hey, I'm going off to the David Foster Foundation Gala. No doubt. Oh. And Stephen Tyler's going to be Stephen Tyler's going to be there, right? He is here. Yeah, yeah left coast fun. I know. We know the story. Kissed on the lips. We know. We know. <laughs> Gotta go. Okay. Toodaloo. Toodaloo. Have a great weekend. The Roy Green Show weekends from two to five on AM 900 CHML.